This episode of the Explaining Ukraine podcast is made in partnership with Voice, a podcast from Central and Eastern Europe. Hello, I'm Agnieszka Wondołowska and you're listening to The Voice, a podcast from Central and Eastern Europe. In this podcast series, we'll be looking at the region from different angles and perspectives, attempting to capture its diversity and understand emerging trends. Above all, we want to give voice to a region that's often talked to rather than listened to. This episode is hosted by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine World. Who are Ukrainians and what do they want? The question about Ukrainian identity is one of those that is interesting right now to many people, many media all over the world, and we will try to um, get our answers to this question here in this podcast. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine, and also host of the Explaining Ukraine podcast, a podcast in English about Ukraine. My co-host is Tatyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. So we've made a lot of podcasts about Ukraine. You can check it, Explaining Ukraine podcast. And of course, we, we tried also not only to reflect about the Russian invasion from 2014, but also, of course, the second Russian invasion from the 24th of February, but also ask the questions, the broader questions. And uh, let us try in this episode to to try to explain, maybe to try to reflect, because no explanation is full, right? To try to reflect upon the question of Ukrainian identity, not only the ethnic and cultural identity, but most importantly, social and political identity. So if you are asked by a foreigner, who are Ukrainians and what they want? What do you reply? Well, um, maybe the um, the main component of my reply would be about the different political culture which is present in Ukraine compared to Russia. Uh, if in Russia we see a kind of a vertical system, I mean, a very organized system of power, which is which has its president, maybe an avatar of a Tsar now, uh, Vladimir Putin, and all this uh, system is uh, very well organized. We are talking about contemporary Russia uh, as of an authoritarian regime. If you compare that with, with Ukraine, you will see clearly that Ukraine has also been a democratic state. Despite all the problems we've had, uh, we, are, we have these horizontal links in the society in the political world as well and Ukraine is very much characterized by these horizontal ties between people inside society so very strong civil society uh, and very competitive political uh, class as well and even we can consider our oligarchs our big problem we had before this invasion uh, oligarchs we had the competition between oligarchs so and it explains at least partly the success if we can call it like that the success of ukraine during this first period of russian invasion when uh, in one moment people were able uh, to defend their own country to resist even if professional structures, I mean uh, vertical structures, 
it, because not only army was engaged, but also territorial defense was engaged, which was a kind of a civil army organized shortly before the war. But at the same time, the whole society was able to uh, to organize the defense in a way uh, for it to become uh, effective. I mean, all the all these horizontal links they played their roles. I mean, I mean. We traveled a lot uh, in, in inside Ukraine during the first weeks uh, of the war. First of all, we were we were fleeing to the west in order to secure our children, but then we were traveling to the east as well, and we observed a lot of um, a lot of initiatives on the ground. Each village organized its own uh, self-defense, its own barricades, its own system to defend. And without waiting for a kind of orders coming from from I don't know from Zelensky or from from commanders, uh, people were able to act as if they were responsible for what was going on. And uh, we, if you observe what's happening now, maybe the last thing I'll say now, and uh, you'll continue. Um, we receive now in Ukraine a lot of calls on a hotline. Uh, from the families of Russian soldiers, there is a uh, on, uh, te- telephonic line for that, for people who t- who are trying to find their sons or s- their husbands, etc. And the common response, there is a dialogue for sure. And the common response of Russian families is that even if they are against this war, they say we are small people. We can do nothing. We can change nothing. So this is an attitude which is uncommon in Ukraine because we all are small people, so we are not all presidents here. But uh, I think our feeling is that Ukrainian feeling, I mean political feeling, political culture, is that everybody is important and you can change things in your place where you are and whatever you are doing. I think you're absolutely right. This political, this uh, particular trait in Ukrainian political culture, that uh, you do not expect orders. You 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 are not ag- acting by orders. Very often you are acting against the orders. And indeed, uh, it is remarkable what you mentioned that in the first days of the Russian invasion, uh, these territorial defense units were organized just just like miracle. On the 24th of February, 25th, in every single Ukrainian village. And uh, people who were evacuating, for example, uh, on the 25th of February, are telling us that, look, we were going to the central and western Ukraine, and suddenly we, re- we realized that after one day of invasion, every village has its barricades, every village has its, uh, its people with Kalashnikovs, every village has uh, its territorial defense. Let us reflect o- o- about the origins of this. My hypothesis is that it is precisely because Ukrainians lacked statehood for, 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 for such a long time. So we can, for example, we can talk ab- about a proto-Ukrainian statehood in the Middle Ages, the so-called Rus, uh, which, uh, the, the, the name which comes from Scandinavia, actually, and which... Uh, afterwards became the basis of of the word uh, uh, Russian Empire, but uh, it was the origin of it was here in Kiev, in in in, in um, the territories around Dnipro. It's another another um, uh, another situation of a very you know 
irony of history when the uh, the names travel from one geography to to another but this rus was very much multi multiply pluralistic uh, state. It was not, not an empire. Sometimes people are calling Rus an empire of the Eastern Europe. It was a powerful state, but with multiple centers of influence, with multiple city-states. It was Kyiv, it was Chernihiv, it was uh, Russian city of Novgorod, it was uh, it was Sperjaslav, it was, uh, it was many other towns, right? Many uh, many other cities, and uh, it's it's remarkable how, for example, Ukrainian historians of the 19th century, like Mykola Kostomarov, when they were thinking about that time, they were talking about federalist uh, eidos, the federalist uh, modus vivendi of of this medieval medieval statehood, and by federalist he actually meant pluralist, right? So, so there, there are many centers of influence. And uh, I think we can compare it with the, with the German city-states of the Middle Ages or with Italian city-states or whatever. Uh, but this was that statehood. And then Ukrainians or proto-Ukrainians were living in, in kind of different statehoods, right? There was a Polish-Lithuanian uh, Commonwealth. There was a Polish kingdom, Rzeczpospolita. Then there was Moscovitzardom, there was Russian Empire, there was Austrian Empire, Habsburg Empire, there was Soviet Union. In neither of these statehoods, states, Ukrainians were not feeling that they are uh, that they are the nation that forms the state. And therefore, I think this was a culture of organizing against or despite the state, the state structures. And therefore, for example, in the Baroque times, we had the tradition of brotherhoods, the bratstva, the so-called bratstva, when in a city like Kyiv, you have people who would you know, collect their funds together and set up some something, set up a university, for example. This is how Kyiv Mohila Academy, in which we're teaching, was born. Uh, the, the Bratstva, which was, which was under structures, which was structures alternative or developing in parallel with the church structures or with the statehood structures. And I think this tradition just, uh, you know, is is very deeply rooted into in, in in the Ukrainian society. Yes, exactly. And maybe uh, one detail to add here is about um, the statehood and the long story of oppression coming from the statehood here in in Ukraine. I mean, this uh, Russian. Uh, page of Ukrainian uh, history uh, in Tsar time, so in Russian Empire time, but also in Soviet time. It was a story of, of oppression of, of, um, and where Ukrainians were deprived uh, frequently deprived of their own identity in 19th century, but then in 20th century, the Soviet period was extremely uh, difficult for Ukraine, not only in terms of identity, um, but also in terms of uh, extermination of Ukrainians, uh, if we talk about Holodomor of the Sotis, and some other tragic periods, even in Chernobyl, it was a Soviet experiment, Soviet um, Will to 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 make this to, to make the station Chernobyl plant and uh, it was one of the reason by the way of the um, of the destruction of the disappearance uh, I would say of the Soviet Union so um, Ukrainians they consider they are the nation. Uh, kind of uh, separate from the statehood and this is a 
a bad thing in a way, and we have a lot of problems with that. Let's recognize that it's also about corruption. It's also about about uh, um, avoiding taxes and a lot of other things. But uh, in times of war, it proved to be a very positive thing because people were not waiting for institutions uh, to provide orders. Uh, when we are talking about volunteers... In Ukraine, sometimes we have problems explaining this phenomenon to our Western friends because this is not about official associations. This is not about official NGOs, not only at least. Sometimes there are people capable to 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 become somebody else. I know, and to 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 organize procedures. I don't know deliveries or processes uh, which are not directly linked to their professional field. And uh, this proved to be effective uh, at times during this invasion. So these horizontal horizontal ties in the Ukrainian society, a very strong civil society, is maybe the first characteristics of what we call Ukrainian identity today. Yes, and of course, this attitude to power, to authorities, as something hostile to you, hostile to citizen, hostile to a community, something you, you play with, something you probably has to, you know, you battle with, is also deeply rooted. And you're right that in peaceful times, that's a huge problem. Uh, because Ukrainians seems that the, we are not identifying ourselves with state in institutions. We're rather uh, considering any state institutions as occupation authorities. But this is a weakness sometimes, but sometimes it is a strength, because uh, as, as we said, uh, well, the, 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 the level of subjectivity, of agency of a, of a, of a typical Ukrainian citizen is much higher, I would say, than the level of agency of a Russian citizen. Because a typical Vox Populi interview that we see sometimes on with with Russian citizens on uh, still on on media on independent media is that that you mentioned. If if you ask a Russian citizen, do you do you support this war? Uh, he or she would say most most typically that I don't know. I have no opinion. I'm not interested in politics. But if uh, the, 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 the boss, Putin, decided that there should be a war, then they know better than me. Yeah. Typical Ukrainian response would be, I know better than any authority. I know better than Zelensky. I know, I know better than Zelensky what to do. I, I, I'm more competent than they are. So this kind of a, a little bit of anarchic spirit, which of course sometimes is very disturbing, but uh, again, this is this is the germ of of that feeling of freedom which is present in the society. It, it it doesn't mean that it is everywhere. The our sociology says that there are a lot of people with this paternalistic also mode of thinking that uh, still wait for something from the state or blame the state for for anything. And by the way, Russian propaganda, Russian pro-Russian parties which were acting. Uh, in Ukraine before this invasion, Medvedchuk or others, they were really playing on the feeling of those people uh, because their major message was the conspiracy message, the, the, the message of conspiratorial propaganda. They were saying, okay, the West is guilty of everything. You are small people, you do not, do not decide anything, but there is a conspiracy of 
powerful players who will decide anything uh, for you. And the key players are, of course, the kind of uh, Western, Western conspiracy, America, United States, NATO, whatever. And um, maybe one, also one detail to add here is about a, a purely military operation. Maybe one of the explanations we've heard from military experts, we are not a military experts, but uh, uh, real military experts were explaining that in the first phase of this war, I mean, that one which took place near Kiev, Chernigiv and Sumy, one of the key successes of Ukrainian army was that people on the ground, I mean, officers on the ground, were free to choose, to, to, to take decisions all by themselves without waiting for an order coming from a center and they knew better because they've been on uh, there was a huge mess you can imagine so uh, we were not ready for the war nobody w- was really ready for the war because it seemed to be c- something 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 virtual something irrealistic something a hybrid but not real not real war like second world war with tanks helicopters uh, uh, missiles and so all those uh, things and so people on the ground were given uh, initiative, so the, the right to have initiative in the place, and it explains partly the success of this uh, of this resistance in place. So it is also important. So it's not a, a war when politicians like like Putin he commands his own army and he uh, he um, makes them act in with a political um, political objective, not military one, and that explains in, um, also partly their defeat uh, sometimes because uh, you cannot succeed military if you have only political objectives and you don't hear your own generals or your people in on the ground who explain you that this is not impossible this is impossible or this is risky etc etc he has for example this political goal to dismantle ukraine in two days and even if generals say that it would be extremely difficult to do so political will is here and everybody Mm, receive this order and they act accordingly and it explains uh, partially their defeat. I think you're right. This th- There is a, uh, some kind of a very practical wisdom that uh, Ukrainian citizens, many Ukrainian citizens have. And I think it is related to the fact that uh, structurally, sociologically, uh, when, when I'm talking about Ukrainian, this Ukrainian wisdom, it's not a theoretical wisdom. It's not a, a, a wisdom of people who, who read a lot of books. It's not a wisdom of people who are, you know, capable of, you know, earning money on, uh, on uh, financial operations or whatever. It's really the, the wisdom of people who are peasants, who are mechanics, who are builders, who are constructors, who are, uh, you know, taxi drivers, uh, who really know how to make very practical things done who know how to um, how to repair a car. How to repair a tank if you've never done that, but you just you were repairing cars and you are easy, so you are you, you learn quickly and you you are you who, become who are very creative, who are very creative, who know how, for example, when they have a weapon and there is a certain application to this weapon, but they can try to do it in another way, for example, to use anti-tank weapon, anti-tank uh, system against the airplane, against the helicopter. It happened, that, that we, it happened we have at seen. least several times. Yeah, right, or who are able to really find a way out of a very difficult situation. And uh, this is also related to the fact that 
Ukraine is not a post-industrial society. Sometimes we hear the interpretation of, you know, uh, our scholars, uh, people we, 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 we all respect, of course, but I think they kind of try to apply this Western model of society over the Ukrainian model of society, saying, for example, that revolutions, the Orange Revolution, the revolution of dignity was made by a middle class, uh, or that uh, Ukraine is a post-industrial, service-oriented society. I think it's it's not true, because if, if, if really these revolutions were made by a middle class, people of the cities, people of the... the uh, the uh, white collar workers, uh, or uh, I don't know, the the office workers, they will not be able to 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 make these practical things, and they will not be able to stand for the, so so much time. They, they really have, Ukrainians really have this strength of standing, of suffering maybe, very ascetic mode of life, uh, the ability to to be very ascetic, uh, to uh, the ability to survive through a very difficult circumstances and, and the ability to make things to repair things to reuse things i would call that uh, that ukrainian they live in in the reality and not in the real world but not in the digital one you know they are even if um, a lot of people uh, experts say about uh, about high tech in ukraine about uh, programmers from ukraine which have they have also their own reputation but maybe the core of the nation which explain the core of the resistance now they people who can to do real things in in real world, not 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 digital. It's not digital culture. And who knows the price of of real things? How to repair a car? How to make it function? How to 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 find uh, find the positions? How to 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 treat people? How to to, to treat wounded people? Uh, how to work in hospitals? All these kind of professions, which are now very much demanded because. Uh, the war is about that. Unfortunately, this war is a real one. It's not the war we imagined uh, a couple of years ago. We were in war for many years already, from 2014. But we were talking a lot about hybrid, hybrid aggression. So we are we're in a kind of illusion that uh, this is not interesting. Nobody will, will create a kind of this uh, 19th century or 20th century style war now because this is stupid. But the problem is that Russia started this really stupid war in the style of 19th and 20th century. So they're advancing with real tanks. They're using artillery as they were using in the Second World War. So it looks, uh, it's, it's the same thing. So, and um, I, 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 I think that a lot of U Europeans, let's imagine, I don't know, French people, I don't know, Germans, in the place of Ukrainians, they would be not ready for such kind of violence. I, I mean, real violence. And it it necessitates a kind of a real reaction. I mean, reaction in, in this uh, real world. Yeah, so this practicality is, 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 very, is a very interesting thing. This war is done not by intellectuals, not by opinion leaders. Uh, many opinion leaders actually went, went to the front line. Uh, people like us, uh, yeah, we are doing a lot of information, intellectual work, but uh, the country can survive without us. I yeah, think, sure. and therefore everybody understands it, and therefore poets, uh, writers, philosophers are either on the front line or doing volunteer work, uh, like we do, um, because the, the really you you feel like a big organism, right? Uh, and and uh, 
buying things for the front line, helping people there and uh, repairing things is, is, is so much important. So really Ukrainians are, I would, I would say to summarize uh, what we have been talking about before, this anti-tyrannical spirit is very important. So Russian, Russian political culture is top-down, Ukrainian political culture is bottom-up. Uh, and it was always there. It was there in the 19th century when Ukrainian, key Ukrainian intellectuals were discussing the key concept of Ukrainian, the self-organization, which is hromada, which, which we, we might translate as community, what we can also refer to as a kind of a option that these Ukrainian intellectuals like Drahomanov, they were actually translating the ancient Greek uh, concept of polis. This is something we don't have also in Russian culture because Russian uh, Russian concept of abshina, also community, is is um, is very different, I think, because it is a strength on the communal against the individual, uh, something where you have obshi, uh, the, the the common, but in the concept of romada you have diff you have different you have uh, this. Um, valorization of both communal and individual and i think it's it's very important maybe um another another important uh, characteristics of this ukrainian identity of modern ukrainian identity is the dynamics of the process look uh, three years ago uh, volodymyr zelensky who was an actor became president of this country and you can cannot imagine such a such a professional um, professional path uh, in in any other country so um, he became a president and uh, we lived uh, many years abroad when we were students and what we've noticed here is the dynamics in the careers you can be easily easily boss when you're in your 30s you can easily start start your business when you are still young and all the speed of process social process in ukraine is much higher than in any other european uh, country so uh, in european countries people they they have time they have time for reflection they have time they are not pressed to when when they, they finish school they graduate they have their sabbatical year and then they reflect on what they will be doing in their lives they take their time to to sit in a cafe so when you're in ukraine everything is very dynamic and so you have to move extremely fast and what seemed to be a kind of a populist decision of ukrainian nation a lot of people, 73% voted for Zelensky. Um, it was not, uh, in my view, it was not only because it was a populist vote, but also because it was a kind of a openness for, for change. And where if even if uh, everything in your life was linked with one field, you can easily, quite easily switch to, to a different field. And when, for example, on the 24th of February, we've seen singers, actors, volunteers, writers, a lot of people without any any military experience. Like, look, for example, Alexei Sov, who is a 
who is writer, who is uh, uh, linked to film filmmaker, and who became a soldier, a simple soldier. He's still on the front line now, and what we know from his uh, for his from his posts in the Facebook, for example, he's becoming really professional uh, during these five months. So people they didn't hesitate to change. Uh, their field of uh, professional field into a quite different field. And th this is linked to a kind of dynamics when you can easily switch, easily become, uh, easily build your career. And this kind of uh, dynamics, it is something very proper to, to Ukrainian society now. This is a question of biographies. So if you, if you want remarkable biographies, go to Ukraine, not only now, but throughout the 20th century. You will, you will, you will find people who, whose life was broken several times. You would find people who were you know, executed by the Stalinist regime, for example, in their 30s and remarkable genius uh, culture actors. You would have people who survived through the Second World War, emigrated and uh, found themselves in, uh, in America or in, in some other places. And I think today this is, this is the same. So probably Ukrainian culture, I always say that it is probably not uh, very visible uh, to other cultures on the level of ideas, because for many writers, many cultural actors who were showing their talent, uh, their lives were amputated. They were cut from the future. They were either sent to Siberia or killed or executed. But uh, the lives of people is remarkable and the transformations. So, uh, so, transformation. so lo look at, uh, as you mentioned, so many people right now who, are, uh, who changed their profession, uh, profession several times who now are on the front line. Can you imagine the experience that they have, the existential experience that they may, ha may it's have? It's maybe linked to the fact that Ukrainians have al always been survivors. I mean, if we look back to the past, we'll see a lot of uh, tragedies in, in Ukrainian history. Uh, and a lot of them caused by Russia, by the way, Holodomor, in Soviet times, many, many others. So this, uh, when you, are, you feel like a survivor, you are very fast to react, you know, you just to change your life, you to change your profession, to change things around you, because otherwise you are dead. So, and that explains maybe these dynamics, this inner dynamics of U Ukrainian society, which um, knows that in order to survive, you have to act very fast. And uh, if, we, if we look on these decades, you mentioned Zelensky, I think that every Ukrainian president was in a way the reflection of a particular stage of development of, of Ukrainian society. And Zelensky is really a product of the 90s. And the 90s, so it's, it is probably the first really post-Soviet president, post-Soviet leader in Ukraine, whose youth was in the 90s. And uh, he's of our age, for example. So he's in his early 40s. And we understand what was the 90s. I would say that the 90s was a period of a total collapse of a system and uh, lots of opportunities. So I would say that people who were successful in the 90s tend to believe that impossible is nothing. And Zelensky, I think it's, he, he comes from this category of people. And I would say previous to this war that this is bad because these people just do not 
measure their capacities because they they just they were they were developed they were they developed themselves in a situation when they challenged something they they succeeded so they came to a conclusion that they can succeed in everything but finally we see that maybe it's a good good thing also because why because this is how society is now thinking so if you ask a question what is to be ukrainian today i would say that it is a feeling that impossible is nothing and sometimes that you do not really realize how much you can and this war by the way it also helps people understand how much they can because if they survived occupation if they they were evacuating their uh, their neighbors they were joining the territorial defense they were fighting uh, they, they were surviving under huge artillery shelling or whatever they are saying to themselves look we are capable of so much things that we didn't didn't realize so uh, again the difference with russia and belarus i think that in Russia and Belarus, also the 90s were very important. But both Russians and Belarusians were afraid of the 90s. Finally, they were afraid of this kind of anarchic, creative chaos. And they decided to bring back the old leaders who would bring the concrete, uh, the bricks, the cement on, on this kind of volcanic uh, dynamism of the 90s. And there comes Lukashenko first and then Putin. Ukrainians did not do that. Even our dictator of the time, Mr. Kuchma, was much softer than Putin and, and Lukashenko. Afterwards, there was an attempt to bring dictatorship back with Yanukovych. It survived only three years. And now we have a person who was really from this magma of the 90s, who made his career on, during the 90s. Uh, he made his career of course, on the Soviet space, post-Soviet space, including in Russia, I mean Zelensky. But I think culturally and socially he's so much different because uh, he's the reflection of that magma, that now volcanic magma of the 90s that now is in the power. Whereas in, in Russia, in, uh, in Belarus, partially in Kazakhstan, uh, in partially in, in some other countries of the Soviet Union, this magma was just destroyed by the old uh, Soviet elites. Yeah, and at the same time, maybe an important detail here to add is that in if you if we, we compare Ukraine and Russia, we see a clear difference. In uh, in Russia, president creates uh, a nadus for a society, creates a image of a society. So for Putin, nineties were kind of uh, very um, very um, pessimistic, very um unfortunate time for Russia. He was presenting these nineties like a humiliation for a big country because of her um because of Soviet Union uh, was gone and all that times where this describes also freedom was equal to to chaos. So and it was also equal to humiliation of Russia. And this idea became an a was forming society. And the difference with in Ukraine is is it not Zelensky who is kind of forming what people think. Uh, just on the contrary, Zelensky was elected because a lot of people think like 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 he was acting that impossible is possible, that this dynamics is very good for society. So 
So present is 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 a is a product of the society and not not a society's product of what president thinks. So this is a huge difference between in fact between two societies, between two visions. It's also about this vertical and horizontal organization of a society. It's the two different types of political culture and uh, how society functions in the end. Yes, so this is very interesting. The last point, uh, maybe there are lots of so much, so so many issues to discuss, and if you feel a certain lack of understanding Ukraine, even our, our after our podcast, we really refer you to our Explaining Ukraine podcast, uh, where we also try to answer different questions about Ukrainian identity, about culture, about politics, but also, of course, about this war, about Russian invasion. So maybe the last thing I want to touch is is the attitude to violence. And I think here it is very, very important how Ukrainians perceive this violence, which is happening right now. They perceive it as a repetition of the older violence. While for the rest of the world, for Europe, maybe this is something unprecedented and, 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 and still people don't understand how this is possible, how this cruelty is possible. Ukrainians really, I think many of us just intuitively or rationally understand that this is just a repetition of the past. And here the Russian slogan, we can repeat, is very important for, for us. Because while Russians are saying we can repeat, можем повторить, is primarily about the Second World War, meaning that they can repeat their so-called victory in the Second World War, Soviet victory, uh, in which Ukrainians, by the way, played a huge role in, in, in victory over Nazism in, in the Soviet army. Uh, and Ukraine and Belarus are key countries who suffered from the Nazi invasion, not Russia. Uh, only tiny part of Russia was actually uh, uh, damaged by the war occupied. Ukraine and Belarus were the key countries which suffered. Uh, but, uh, but this slogan, we can repeat, obviously brings this idea of a new violence. And if we look back uh, into Russian intellectual cultural history, we see that this slogan is, is present very often. It is present in the classics of the Russian literature. Just read uh, Pushkin's To the Slanderers of Russia. There is, by the way, a, a, a poem made after the Polish, re, uh, Polish revolt in the Russian Empire of 1830, 18, 1831. Uh, there is a clear uh, warning, uh, a threat even. He is really threatening Europe that we can repeat, meaning that they can repeat uh, the, the, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, for example. Or read Tuchev, uh, another famous Russian poet, and his... Uh, text about Russia and revolution in 1948, when the Central Europe, for example, was full of revolutions, the so-called springtime of the peoples, and we see how Russian intellectuals were so much hostile to it, to all these democratic movements in, in Europe. And uh, it was clearly also Tuchev hinting that Russia will crack down all these revolutions, all these democratic movements. So I th- if, if you read a text from the Ukrainian culture, for example, I'm now reading a novel by Vasil Barka, who is a famous Ukrainian writer. His novel about Holodomor, which you mentioned, which is called The Yellow Prince. It exists in French translation, not in English, unfortunately. 
but you just understand when you read the scenes when these uh, communist party people were entering each particular house of a Ukrainian peasant and taking all the food which was in the house, all the food, even the food for kids, even the food for babies. They were literally taking everything out to make people starve. You just understand that this is this current invasion in a nutshell, in the microcosm. So you, you see this attitude to violence, which is maybe this uh, habitude to live in violence, uh, in violence that is, uh, that, is, that is coming from outside. And by saying, and, and, and a, a kind of a willingness to get rid of it finally, to liberate from it. Yes. Yes, and this issue of violence, I, I do like your argument here because it's it's quite uh, vital and uh, for us. But at the same time, it's also attitude to time. What so when Russians say that we can repeat, we can reconstruct, there are a lot of reconstructions in what they are doing now. A lot of allusions to the past. And sometimes we just ask a question, but what, what is voice for? What is the project? And there's some difficulties because they are trying to repeat the story, to, re, to restore this big empire, but the, the project coming from the past. They don't have real ideas for the future. And in, in Ukrainian history, we've talked about that many times, but let's repeat it now. Ukrainians, we, we will never say let's repeat because Our history is full of these horrible episodes, horrible um, times, and uh, a lot of human suffering. So Ukrainians did everything to forget about the past and to construct a future, a different future, a future which will have nothing to do with all our traumatism in the past. So Ukrainians were about political project, I mean social project, they are about future. And when Ukraine chose Europe as its future, European Union, this modern story of Ukraine started with the revolution of dignity of Euromaidan. It was a clear political, geopolitical choice for European Union. It, it was not for European bureaucracy or European rules. It was about about a future project. I mean, about, about values, about human dignity, about the possibility to live without violence. It was also about security. Mm, this sympathy for, for NATO, for example, now they are extremely high. Uh, they are sev more than 70% now, and they were around 40-something, up to 50% before the war. So we are progressing quite quickly. So Ukraine is trying, is, is trying to, to imagine a future and was al always trying to imagine a future. And Russia, when asked a question, what really you want now here in Ukraine, they will talk about... They will talk about uh, Mm, about Peter the Grand, they will talk about about empire, Russian empire. They will talk about uh, golden times of this Russian empire. They will talk about the f about the past. They are not talking about their own country, as about the country which suggests some alternative model to what Europe is now. I think the, the question of violence is really key in in Ukraine striving for Europe. Maybe Ukrainians perceive Europe very naively. Uh, they maybe have this naive attitude of disregarding that violence that comes from Europe in 19th century, in the colonial times, in, in, in the 20th century, etc. But I would say I had a formula once that Europe, for Ukrainians, Europe is the 
progressive history of re reducing the space for violence. And I think it's, it's, it's very valid. Therefore, uh, Ukrainians have this dream about Europe. But coming back to violence, I think for Ukrainians it's a big task, very difficult task, to reflect upon the violence, not only uh, the violence against us, but also the violence which we committed, we as Ukrainians. And this is a difficult task, especially if you are again and again in the circle of, of violence and we, when you are the victim. Uh, obviously, in the current war, Ukraine is a victim. But uh, this is a big, a big task to, to avoid a, a very dangerous trap of saying that all Ukrainians have always been victims. Uh, and I think this is a very dangerous trap and Ukrainians have to avoid it and mention that there is a guilt of Ukrainians uh, in uh, in the massacre of Poles uh, in Volin, for example, during Second World, uh, Second World War. There is a guilt of Ukrainians with regard to Jewish population here during pogroms, some of the participation in the Holocaust, although it was not as exaggerated that some, some somebody from outside is presenting it, but of course there is this question. I would say that our, our relation to the Crimean Tatars, we which, which in our literature, especially 19th century, was always hostile. So we were kind of a very close to this, uh, to this question. And, but still in the early 20th century, already there was huge interest to these Muslim cultures by people like Ahatanhil Krimsky, who is probably one of the best Ukrainian intellectual of the early 20th century, who was himself a Crimean Tatar by origin. So many questions that we have to reflect upon and analyze. But there is also a question about ideology, because we, we have this question all the time when we talk about Ukraine. So what is about your far right? What is about your neo-fascists or whatever? And it is so, we are so tired to rep reply to it that the far right in Ukraine is a tiny minority, that they have 2-3% on parliamentary elections all the time, that we have a Jewish-Russian-speaking president, uh, and uh, that we have basically a very tolerant linguistic situation. We didn't discuss it, by the way, but we uh, discussed language in, in one of our Explaining Ukraine podcasts. But one uh, very final thought is that ideologically, if you look at Ukrainian intellectual history, the conservative tradition, the far-right traditions were very, very minor. We can talk about the 30s and the 40s primarily when all Europe was basically in this temptation of either far right or far left. But interestingly, if you look at the 19th century, uh, Ukrainian idea was primarily identified with the socialist idea, with the idea of, <clears throat> of uh, so-called people's movements. If you talk about the late 20th century, I think that the major line of Ukrainian thinking was something between liberalism and uh, patriotism, kind of a, I would say, centrist, centrist right uh, ideology. Uh, so when Ukrainians are outside of the world identified with, you know, Ounopa, it is remarkably so marginal in the whole 
range of Ukrainian intellectual and cultural history. Yeah, but history. at the same time, we do understand that this is a direct result of Russian propaganda, by the way, just to present Ukrainians as a far right, to present Ukrainians as Nazis, Nazis, and now uh, Putin was talking about denazification as a objective, primary objective of this war. So this is a kind of manipulation, and uh, um, this is not a discourse, not a narrative which is popular in Ukraine. Most of people are centrist, are liberal. Some some of older generation they are socialists, like uh, like because people who live in the Soviet Union they have leftist opinions on what's going on. So I would not say that this far right represents any kind of important political political force now in Ukraine and such a pity really we are really tired to explain that dozens of times starting from 2014 because uh, these discussions they started in 2014 when Crimea was enacted because there was annexation of Crimea and the partial occupation in Donbass so um Ukrainians are not radicals. It's important to understand they're not radical. There is no, no at least no more than in any other European country, xenophobia against other nations. And this is also a difference with Russia. This violence, and I mean, I mean, Ukrainians, um, the majority of Ukrainians, they tend to avoid violence. I mean, just to 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 create a secure place where there will be no room for. For, for violence because we suffered a lot from that. Now we are still suffering from it today, unfortunately. And I think that any kind of a political project in in the post-war Ukraine, so we are thinking already about post-war Ukraine, will be will be based on this on the security issues uh, and on this idea of reduction of violence. So let us sum up uh, the answer to the questions: Who are Ukrainians and what do they want? I think that. We, we try to reply to it by saying that Ukrainians is a nation of uh, Eastern Europe, East Slavic nation, which tries to bring less violence to Eastern Europe, which, trying to, which is trying to be less tyranny to Eastern Europe, to this geography which was for centuries a battlefield of empires, to bring a kind of a republican spirit, republican or democratic spirit, meaning that the spirit... Of a, of a political tradition which valorizes uh, as many citizens as possible and not this hierarchical uh, pyramid. It's also a nation which thinks in terms of not, not so much of bureaucracy and rules, but in terms of uh, real uh, vital dynamics in the society, which can change rules easily and which can really open to any kind of transformation. So uh, it is European, but it's it's quite far away from what, what is frequently associated in with Europe in Western societies. I mean, bureaucracies, these rules and all this. It's not the Europe of rules, it's rather Europe of freedom. We can we can call it this way. So I hope we, we, we try to 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 answer this question as far as we can. Uh, my name is Volodymyr Yermonk, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World, analytics director at Internet Ukraine, one of the biggest and oldest Ukrainian media NGO, and my co-host is Tetyana Harkova, who is a Ukrainian scholar university teacher and journalist and uh, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Thank you for listening and stand with Ukraine. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please keep an eye out for further installments of The Voice podcast. 
in which we'll be looking into other key issues and trends in Central and Eastern Europe, including green policies, rule of law, and media freedom. The Voice is brought to you by a network of independent English language media in Central and Eastern Europe. Notes from Poland, Kafka Desk, Inside Hungary, Internews Ukraine, New Eastern Europe, Reporting Democracy, Transitions, Ukraine World, and V-Square. To see more content from our network of independent English language media, please visit Notes from Poland homepage, where you will find a link to the project. Thank you for listening. This was Voice, and I'm Agnieszka Wondołowska.